This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, this is Mike Pesca, host of The Gist, which you know since you are listening to The Gist. But I'm here to tell you about an exciting new project I've been working on for a year. It is called Not Even Mad. Not Even Mad is a weekly discussion among three people who get along but also like to argue. It's me, Jamie Kerchick, and Virginia Heffernan, three people from, broadly speaking, different ideological perspectives, but certainly not doctrine. But the idea is we will discuss current events and we will discuss politics and what's in the news. And we'll hash it out. And then at the end, as per the title, we will be not even mad. It's something I think our society is sorely lacking. Certainly you are lacking it in your podcast player if you haven't subscribed yet. And why would you have? This is the first time anyone is hearing about it. We're going to drop the world debut promo right after I get done talking. But let me commend you to the show notes. There is a link to not even mad, which will have its official debut on October 26th and air every Wednesday after that. Not even mad, a joyful dispute. Enjoy. Hi, I'm Mike Pesca, and I'm here to change minds. Okay, that almost never happens, but I do take pleasure in a feisty, well-made argument, even if it's one with which I don't agree. Let me introduce you to a new podcast called Not Even Mad. It's a weekly political discussion among three people who usually don't agree and actually take some joy in that fact. I occupy the moderate seat. To my left, there's Virginia Heffernan. You'll still keep thinking if you're a Trumpite that like the Dominion something and the lizard people and all that stuff. And on the more conservative side, there's Jamie Kerchick. This impulse to get someone fired or punished for expressing a viewpoint that you disagree with. That is why I refer to it as a Maoist struggle session. We'll touch on all the big issues. Anti-abortion and anti-gay marriage are minority positions in America. Depends how you define anti-abortion. I guess my question is, who are Democrats and who's Joe Biden to offer Republicans an off-ramp? Republicans, I'm sure, are saying, thanks for the off-ramp, we're winning elections. We should not be encouraging more students going to school to get degrees in practically anything that ends with studies, okay? Because it's not going to help them. I'm sorry. I do not think that stay in his lane is the appropriate critique for someone who is president of the American Historical Association. Instead of wiping away, though, the degrees in the humanities, I would wipe away the squash courts, the fun, the parties, the... Not the squash courts. I'm a, I'm a religious squash They came player. for the squash courts, and I said nothing. <laughs> And I sometimes play the role of Chief Justice as we convene a special judicial panel that rules on cancellations of the day. Oyves, oyves, we convene another session of cancel court. The question, is tenure delayed, justice denied? Can we call Nicole Hannah-Jones canceled? On Not Even Mad, we channel not only voices of populist grievance, but voices of experience. 1984, I learned about political idealism, of course, handing out pamphlets to people that said things like, the rich have to pay their share, guys. 
Listen to Not Even Mad wherever you subscribe to podcasts because a finely honed disagreement is a thing to savor. The following content could in fact be explicit, contain moments of explicitity, flex of explicature, trace elements of explication. Actually, that last one's a goal. It's Friday, October 21st, 2022 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Wow. Exciting announcement there. Thanks, Mike Pesca. So it's not the longbow and it's not the Gatling gun. But Iranian drones are an important force in the battle over the skies of, and especially into the sides of, Ukraine. The increased use of Iranian drones over the last two months coincides with Russian infantry losing ground and the depletion of Russian missile stockpiles. Also, the successful interception of the missiles that the Russians did launch. One popular Iranian drone is the Shahed. Shahed is Persian for witness, which is a lot more passive as a naming convention than many American drones. We have the Predator, the Puma, the Switchblade, the Phoenix Ghost. I don't understand how a phoenix can have a ghost, a phoenix being an immortal creature that is continually reborn, no soul, or maybe a phoenix ghost is what they call it when a guy meets you on a cold night in the desert but won't return calls when the sun is up the next day. Or maybe it's a better name for a pepper than a drone. Anyway, the Ukrainians also have their own drone, the ST-35 Silent Thunder. ST stands for Silent Thunder. So it's the Silent Thunder, Silent Thunder, kind of a noisy name for a product that bills itself as silent. Also, thunder is a purely auditory phenomenon, so this drone might as well be the oxymoron 35, negative 35. The Ukrainians do love their drones, and they love other people's drones if they're helping the Ukrainians. Early in the war, the Ukrainians wrote a song about a very useful drone from Turkey, the Bayraktar. Пришли окупанти до нас в Україну. Форма новенька, воєнні машини, та трохи поплавився їх інвентар. Bayraktar. Bayraktar. But before we let them drone on for too long, let us return to the Iranian drone, the Shahed, the witness. Come to think of it, many Harrison Ford movies would make for good drone names. The Blade Runner, the Patriot Game. Wait, which drone? You know, the Air Force One, the one that's a clear and present danger. The Frantic, and of course, the most dangerous of all, the Working Girl. Not only has the Shahed been witnessed in attacks on Ukrainian buildings and populations, Iranian military personnel have also been witnessed in the country advising the Russians and supplying the drones. And you may have heard a name for the category of weapon these drones belong to. Well, Russia's use of those Iranian-supplied kamikaze drones has marked a significant shift. takes aim at the kamikaze drone as it bears down on... Now, yesterday, a barrage of kamikaze drones were used by Russia to carry out... Of these Shahed drones, these kamikaze drones that have been wreaking... It's called a kamikaze drone because it does literally that. It flies into the target. Whether you say kamikaze, kamikaze, or kamikaze... You're all saying the wrong thing. A kamikaze pilot, Japanese for divine wind, a kamikaze pilot pretty much depends on there being a pilot in the aircraft. That's why it's notable. The important idea is that the feller goes boom along with the weaponry. The weaponry going boom is just what weaponry does. It's like calling a bullet a kamikaze bullet or saying the catapult in Lord of the Rings launched kamikaze boulders. 
They're just drones. They don't deliver weapons. They are weapons. And while words like kamikaze and Iranian and drone are scary, as is the fact that a reported eight people have been killed by Iranian drone attacks over the last week, this development can be seen more as cause for confidence than concern. With fewer options, the mighty Russian army is outsourcing its attack to cheap but defeatable interlopers. We may just be witnessing the capitulation of a military no longer thought of as one of the most imposing in the world. On the show today, it is an Antoine Tig. I shall present plaudits and lobsters. But first, the drama out of China is who its leader, Xi Jinping, will reveal as members of the elite Politburo Standing Committee. So what's fascinating about what's fascinating is that it is a fait accompli that Xi Jinping himself will be extending his rule for another five years, beyond the 10 he's already served. The most powerful Chinese leader since Mao Zedong, and so little is known about the man. Well, Ably Filling in the Gaps is an enjoyable and informative new podcast from The Economist called The Prince. Reported and hosted by The Economist's China correspondent, Su Lin Wang, The Prince will inform you of things you didn't know about C, including biographical details. You realize that you didn't believe you didn't know. It's a really good podcast. I hope you'll find it's a really good interview. Up next with Su Lin Wang. Російські танкісти сховались в кущі, щоб лаптю посорбати довбані щі, та трохи у щах перегрівся навар. Байрактар. Байрактар. Зі сходу припхались до нас барани, для восстановлення великої страни, найкращий пастух баранячий хотар. Байрактар. Xi Jinping, the leader of China and presumably leader for many more years, is, by my estimates, the least examined, most important person in the world. The most important part is, I think, easy to prove. Is he more important than any U.S. president? Well, those guys only last four or eight years. Look how long Xi has lasted. And least examined? Here's proof of that. Su Lin Wang's new podcast for The Economist called The Prince examines him, and there were so many aspects of his biography that I was not aware of. Su Lin Wang joins me now. Thanks. Thanks for joining me. Thanks so much, Mike. It's great to be here. Your, so what's your day job uh, covering China and sea? Well, my day job prior to starting this podcast series was a China correspondent at The Economist. I was supposed to be based in Beijing, but uh, waited for years to get my visa. It never came. So I was hanging out in Hong Kong. Uh, and it was like a very, very fascinating time to be in Hong Kong. I covered the pro-democracy protests in 2019 and then the fallout and uh, really examined how the Chinese Communist Party turned this once free and open city into a police state. But last year, I got this ominous letter from the Hong Kong immigration authorities, uh, and I didn't feel safe to stay anymore. So I left all of a sudden, uh, and then I found out that they had refused to renew my work visa. So since then, I've sort of been uh, covering China, but not from anywhere near China, which is increasingly the experience of a lot of foreign correspondents who are on the China beat. I think I know more 
journalists who cover China who aren't in China than I know correspondents who are in China. Mm. So let's start, I mean, you start with uh, early in his life, and in fact, the milieu that his parents were born into. Tell me, if you would, about the century of humiliation, how important that is in China and Xi's history. So Xi Jinping was born into Chinese Communist Party royalty, and his dad had fought alongside Mao Zedong, the founder of the People's Republic of China. And back then, you know, before the founding of uh, communist China, there was a lot of upheaval. There was a lot of unrest. You know, there were foreign invasions. There was mass poverty. Um, it was, it was, you know, and so from the Chinese Communist Party's perspective, they came in and tried to build a new China and tried to make China strong again. And Xi Jinping's family was very much a part of that. And so he grew up uh, immersed in this narrative that it was his job to continue this fight and continue trying to make China strong again. And so there's a lot of propaganda about the century of humiliation, which from the Chinese Communist Party's perspective is the period of time leading up to the founding of the People's Republic in 1949. And so Xi Jinping believes that you know, China cannot go back to that that dark period uh, and, and wants to make China stronger and better. Now, of course, once the Chinese Communist Party came into power, there was a lot of madness and, you know, there was a lot of trauma inf inflicted on millions of Chinese, but all of that is erased from uh, sort of how the Communist Party tells its own history. Right. And Although Xi's father was extremely important, that does not mean that he had anything close to a comfortable life, does it? That's right. So even though Xi Jinping was born into the elite levels of Chinese politics and for the early years of his life, grew up in a guarded compound with nannies and housekeepers, he and his brothers and sisters went to the best boarding schools, all of that was lost when Xi Jinping was nine years old because his dad had a falling out with Mao Zedong over a novel because, you know, Chinese history is very, very contested. And so whoever controls the narrative controls history. And so Mao Zedong didn't like this book that his dad had helped publish. And so Xi Jinping's dad was purged and then Xi Jinping's whole life was turned upside down. And so there are these interviews and memoirs of what happened to Xi Jinping once his dad fell out of favor. And it's extraordinary. I mean, there's this story of how Xi Jinping is dragged into this courtyard in Beijing at the start of the Cultural Revolution, which was this mad time in Chinese history when Mao Zedong unleashed mobs loyal to him. And these mobs beat, tortured and killed you know, anyone they considered an enemy. And Xi Jinping was, was considered an enemy. He was labeled a counter-revolutionary. And so he was dragged into this courtyard. He was forced to wear this dunce cap with Chinese characters written on it, uh, denouncing him. And then people started shouting down with Xi Jinping, including his mother. So his own mum mm. was forced to denounce him. That was the type of world that he existed in at that time. How did he get back into the party's good graces? I mean, enough to rise, enough to get prominent positions when he was young. After the initial uh, madness in the cities of the Cultural Revolution, Mao Zedong decided to send millions of 
urban Chinese youth to the countryside. And Xi Jinping was one of them. And for most people, it was this horrific experience. But Xi Jinping describes how he remembers being on the train, being sent from Beijing to the countryside, and all the other kids around him were crying because they didn't want to go. But he was smiling because he genuinely feared for his life if he stayed in Beijing because he was being attacked by these mobs. So he went to the countryside Conditions were incredibly basic, incredibly tough. He writes about how there was no electricity. He was covered in flea bites. He had to sleep on a bed surrounded by pesticide to try to ward off the fleas. He lived in a cave. He lived in a cave for seven years. I don't think there are many other world leaders who were denounced by their mothers as teenagers and then lived in in a cave in the countryside. Um, And... You know, at first he really hated it, so the official narrative goes, and he ran back to Beijing, and then he was again sentenced to hard labor. He had to lay sewer pipes, and he eventually went back to this village. And then the official narrative says he found himself, and he found the Chinese Communist Party. And that sort of was how his rise through the ranks of the Chinese Communist Party began. What lessons did he learn from his father, from what his father did wrong in his eyes? So I think there are a couple of lessons that Xi Jinping learned from his dad. When Xi Jinping was a kid, his dad would constantly talk to Xi and his brothers and sisters about the revolution and how they too would be revolutionaries and they too would fight for a stronger, bigger China. So Xi Jinping deeply understands Communist Party history, and he sees himself as this sort of man on a mission and an inheritor of the Chinese Communist Party's legacy. And I think that very much came from his mother and father. So that's one thing he learned from his dad. But I think another thing he learned is that power is a zero-sum game. And if you lose power, really, really bad things can happen to you. And he saw that when he was a kid. He saw what happened to his dad and he himself personally experienced it. Another lesson that Xi Jinping drew from his father was the importance of keeping your head down and not attracting too much attention. So what we saw as Xi Jinping rose through the provinces, and and what I would say is that, you know, Xi Jinping is quite interesting compared to other Chinese leaders who are, you know, more technocrats often. Um, Xi Jinping is a tried and tested politician. He went to the lowest rungs of the party in the provinces back when, you know, China was incredibly poor, incredibly corrupt in the 1980s, and he rose up. So he would have seen a lot of really, really crazy stuff, and he would have seen how brutal and ruthless the party machine was, you know, in far-flung provinces in China. Um, And I think his strategy was very much, I'm going to keep my head down, I'm going to bide my time, I'm not going to attract too much attention, I'm not going to really... Um, explicitly align myself with a particular faction, which is, you know, very common in Chinese politics. At least back then, there were a lot of different factions. Uh, and I'm just going to try and be like pretty pleasant and get along with everyone. And and that was very much his strategy as he rose up through the party. Now, the psychology of someone who is not just oppressed, but abused, I guess it could go in one of a couple of ways. And the way that I would first think, or maybe as common in our Western narratives, is to rise up against your abuser and to get revenge. But that's not what he did. He 
Maybe another narrative is something like Stockholm Syndrome or internalization, or maybe you could say rationally taking away lessons and figuring out how to navigate this uh, system so that he wins at it. What, psychologically speaking, explains why he did the latter and not the former? So I think for the millions of Chinese on that train with Xi Jinping when they were teenagers, a lot of them you know, decided they wanted nothing to do with the Chinese Communist Party because it was the party and Mao that had inflicted so much trauma on them. But I think the lesson Xi Jinping drew from that tumultuous traumatic time of modern Chinese history wasn't that the Chinese Communist Party in and of itself was bad. He decided what had happened was the party had lost control. And if he ever rose to the top of the party, he would make sure that the party never lost control again. And well, and the podcast is, as you know, but I'll tell the audience, it's not just C, it's his milieu, it's other important people in his life and in the country. Uh, his wife, for instance, I didn't know she was a big, a big star, a singer, uh, much more famous than he was when they married, right? That's right. Yeah. She even has uh, a couple of albums on Spotify. And the joke for many years in China was, um, who is Xi Jinping? Oh, he is the husband of Peng Liyuan, who is his wife. And so she performed on, you know, very, very high profile Chinese TV shows like the annual gala of Chinese New Year. And so she was much more recognizable up until Xi Jinping really burst onto the national stage. Did she help his rise, not just uh, personally behind the scenes, but her stardom? Did that help him at all? I think so, yeah. And, you know, before Xi Jinping took power, previous Chinese leaders' uh, wives were generally sort of um, not – they weren't like um, first ladies in America who are, you know, glamorous and very much a part of the presidency. And so – Peng Liyuan, Xi Jinping's wife, is the first Chinese first lady to really play that kind of role. And I think that has really boosted his image. And she talks about how, uh, well, she's actually, this is Xi Jinping's second marriage. His Mm -hmm, first marriage was to the daughter of the former Chinese ambassador to the UK. Uh, But they sort of reportedly fought a lot and she wanted to move back to the UK and Xi Jinping saw his future in China and they divorced. But um, Peng Liyuan, his current wife, talks about how she really wanted a strong, impressive man who could tame her and who could control her, which I think is like quite an insight into Xi Jinping and, you know, how traditional and patriarchal he is, that his wife goes on these talk shows and and talks about, you know, what attracted her to him. Yeah. Another character is uh, an important intellectual figure. I did the translation to the American experience. I thought of him as kind of a Kissinger figure, but Wa Wu Ming? Wang Huning, yes. Wa Huning, yes. Tell me about him. Wang Huning is this extraordinary character. So he was a professor at a top university in Shanghai, and he was plucked out of obscurity by a previous Chinese leader. And he has been advising Chinese leaders since the early 1990s. So it it would be like someone was in the White House for and advised Clinton and then Bush and then Obama and then Trump. I mean, like the right. political dexterity so like of David this man. David Gergen plus Steve Bannon. 
Yeah, exactly. And, you know, we've, we've, I was sort of talking earlier about how brutal and ruthless Chinese politics is. You know, Joe Biden still calls Mitch McConnell his friend, whereas Xi Jinping puts all his enemies in jail. Um, and yet this man, Wang Huning, has been able to navigate it all and really shape a lot of the party ideology. And party ideology isn't some kind of like abstract theoretical thing in China. It's like what kids study in their textbooks in their school classrooms. It's what people have to study in um, trainings at their offices. Uh, It's like all over China. It's on big banners as you drive by highways. So that kind of ideology is is everywhere, permeates the whole of Chinese society and is very much linked to Wang Huning, who is advising Xi Jinping. So I want to ask, here we are as we talk, the 20th Communist Party Congress is, it's still going on, right? That's right. Um, In light of an unprecedented term that Xi Jinping uh, is going to serve, a huge issue is Taiwan, and part of the century of humiliation would be to uh, address the loss of Taiwan. This is, you know, something the Chinese won't acknowledge. Mainland China won't acknowledge that it was even lost, but it's very important and it drives policy. However, I wonder: Do you think that he really, being as smart as he is, does he really want? to capture and reabsorb Taiwan, or does he like it better as an issue to be seen as striving towards that goal rather than achieving it? From the West's perspective, we see Taiwan as this free and democratic self-governing island. But from China's perspective, and from the Chinese Communist Party's perspective, they very much see it as a province of China. And so I think, you know, the mentality is totally different. And Xi Jinping talks about the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation, which is basically like make China great again. And he sees Taiwan as fundamental to the rejuvenation of China. So when the Chinese Communist Party talks about the peaceful reunification of Taiwan, they are serious about that. And, you know, at the moment, the way they talk about it is that they don't want war. But the reality is that we are increasingly concerned that that's the direction we're heading in. Now, what I would say here is that it's not just that there's a risk of military intervention. The Chinese Communist Party has an incredible array of tools to try to co-opt and coerce societies. And we really saw this in Hong Kong. So I was in Hong Kong for the past few years and, you know, I covered the pro-democracy protests, but I also covered the fallout and I, I covered how the Chinese Communist Party turned this once free and open city into a police state. And they didn't actually need to roll tanks across the border. They infiltrated government ministries, they infiltrated NGOs, they infiltrated universities, they coerced and co-opted businesses, and not just Chinese businesses, they co-opted Western businesses, big brands that we're all familiar with. The NBA? <laughs> exactly. They, the NBA is a very, very good example. Um, and, and then they used, you know, fear to induce self-censorship. And, and I, you know, I worry that those techniques are the types of things they're also trying on Taiwan, but also in other societies around the world. And, you know, many, many people and organizations and governments feel like they have to do as the Chinese Communist Party wants. When... 
She leaves the national, international stage, the world stage. We talked about how he was forged with the uh, notion that there was a century of humiliation and there was this project to reverse that and to address it. Can we say that his legacy will have been to do just that, to reverse the century of humiliation? When Xi Jinping came into power 10 years ago, the Chinese Communist Party and China were in crisis. Corruption was rampant. There were hundreds of thousands of protests. There was infighting at the very, very top of the party. And if you look at what he's done over the past 10 years, he has really cracked down on the Communist Party. He's instilled party discipline through his ideology, but also through his signature corruption crackdown. And once he seized control of the Communist Party, which is the biggest political organization in the world with nearly 100 million members, so many, many more people than the population of Germany. Once he did that, he used the party to seize control of China. And what we've seen is China become a lot more repressive, a lot more authoritarian, a lot more closed. And Xi Jinping has constructed these censorship machines, propaganda machines, and surveillance machines that make it a lot harder for people in China to challenge the party's grip on power. So from his perspective, he's been incredibly effective over the past 10 years, and he's really sort of contributed to the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation, so to speak. Now, of course, from our Western perspective, you know, whether or not that's a good thing for China and the Chinese people and China's relationship with the world is is a very, very different question. And, you know, I would say it's really, really not been great. Uh, but but I would say from his perspective, yeah, he, he thinks he has really contributed to making China stronger. Su Lin Wang is The Economist's China correspondent, and her new podcast is called The Prince. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Mike. And now the spiel. Another Antoine Tig is upon us, our name for a 21-day period from the Old English. And oh, the mistakes I have made. I first go to Mark Mascalino, who said during a recent interview with Steve Case, I mentioned the Fifth Third Bank, speculating it was named that because it's on Fifth and Third Street. It is not. As Mr. Mascolino informed me, the name Fifth Third Bank came about when the Third National Bank and the Fifth National Bank had a baby, well, consolidated. And I guess they couldn't decide on the catch-all name of the Fourth Bank or Third to the Fifth Power or Fifth to the Third Power. What would that be? Uh, 243, I believe. I'm doing the math for you, but I got the fact wrong. Thank you, Mark. A number of people, that number being somewhere in the low thousands, uh, emailed, wrote in to inform me that I got it wrong when I said Angela Lansbury played Frank Sinatra's mother in The Manchurian Candidate. It was obviously, oh so obviously, Lawrence Harvey's mother that Angela Lansbury played. I shall force someone to take the body away from him. And Johnny will release those microphones and those cameras with blood all over him, fighting off anyone who tries to help him, defending America even if it means his own death, rallying a nation of television viewers into hysteria to sweep us up into the White House with powers that will make martial law seem like anarchy. I gave a funny little quip, I thought, quoting the Manchurian candidate to everyone who wrote in. Let us say, for instance... 
that your name was David Hunley or Alice Gunn or Michael Uda or Joseph Schnagel who wrote in, I would say something like, Joseph Schnagel is the kindest, bravest, warmest, most wonderful human being I've ever known. So we were all in on the same page. And wasn't it just so delightful? I made a mistake. No, it wasn't. I take that seriously. Few people wrote in about my spiel about the teacher, the organic chemistry teacher, who was essentially fired for giving too hard or too strenuous grades, failed too many students. They complained. A math teacher asked not to be identified a math teacher at a magnet school in a gentrifying city, said that there is a way to make the hard classes work. Now, it's important to me that it was in a high school, but she called it scaffolding. It's a term I hear, which is you don't lower standards for organic chemistry. You make it a two-semester class. So you can build the foundations and still teach them the hard stuff. And if more than half a class fails then, guess what? The class was poorly designed. That makes sense. Uh, as you heard in my spiel that day, I support doing such things in the lower grades when you get to college. I think that um, only so much hand-holding can go on. Although, if you don't want to get fired, maybe I'm wrong. Megan Rosa Caldwell, who wrote in, and she's a researcher at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, which is the teaching hospital at the Harvard Medical School. She wrote in to highlight the possible role of the faculty in this debacle, whereas I think there are a lot of faculty genuinely who do want their students to succeed. Very few are ever taught how to do that, and even fewer are willing to put in the work to make their classes more accessible without compromising vigor. Not sure if this applies in the case of this particular teacher, Dr. Jones, who we're talking about, but... Rosa Caldwell writes in, I spend a lot of time developing very thorough rubrics for all graded assignments where I specifically give feedback on areas for improvement. It's a pain, but it's my job to do so. I also agree that some amount of difficulty is necessary in college classes, particularly those classes that help discriminate between those ready for the academic rigor of medical school and those who do not. Does a physician necessarily need to know the difference between DNL formation of different molecules? I have to say, I'm I hope a podcaster doesn't, but she says, unless they're going into form ecology? Probably not. However, they do need to be comfortable with hours of studying to master difficult material. A lot of people wrote in, a lot of educators listen to the show, or at least people with the inclination to educate me, and I do appreciate that. Over on Reddit, I do love Reddit. Join Reddit if you can and go to the gists page. X sinking ship X, or maybe just the Xer for show. He's written in before. This time was about the Annie Duke interview. Fabulous interview. But when it comes to discussing our political blind spots, it's always Trump and January 6th, never the actual science behind transgenderism or the actual science behind the pandemic. I'm a Jill Stein voter, so no defending Trump here, but the in-group signaling, meaning me talking to my audience and always picking on Trump as the example of that which is totally untethered from reality, uh, never stops and it damages credibility. I'll tell you why I do it. You asked, I'll answer. It's because transgenderism as a concept is contested. Some parts of it are not. If you ask a biologist, is there such a thing as sex? They will say yes and be able to articulate how there is a difference and how it's just not all great gray areas as some researchers or perhaps sociologists in the field of gender research might put it or have you believe. However, 
even if you strip away even the extreme claims, Christian claims of God, the rigidity of doubting that there is any legitimacy for being trans, identifying as trans, having trans expression, if you strip away the meanness of the Steven Crowder docs, which may score points if you're of that ilk, if you strip away the catastrophizing of activists who say Emily Bazelon's excellent reporting literally is killing people, that's what they say, literally is killing people, and you come down to what the debate or the science is, there is still much that is contested. That's what Emily was writing about, the WPATH guidelines. And that's why Sweden and the UK in their uh, hospitals and with their recommendations differ from the United States and should puberty blockers be prescribed as a default or should they be, should parents be skeptical about them? There's no consensus, but there is consensus on the election was not stolen. Donald Trump did not win. So when I go and point to, and it's similar with uh, the pandemic and coronavirus, so much is still being known. Did we get masks right, wrong, you know, tweak it based on obvious concerns at a time? It is not comparable in my mind to very simple or clear black and white examples of, say, Trump and his supporters saying the election was stolen. It is a bad comparison. I'm not going to go for it as my go-to to make a point when really all I'm doing is opening a different can of worms. Speaking of uh, listeners who think me as maybe too right or too left, grading Republicans on a curve. Zlubars over on Reddit, love the locks at Zlubars, said on the show today, Mike covered the election fraud terror squad in, in Florida not more than a week ago. Mike declared that Ron DeSantis wasn't an asshole. Part of Mike's bias is grading Republicans, Republican thought, Republican policies on the world's biggest curve. In what other way could Ron DeSantis not be considered an asshole? He's rude. He's abrasive. He yells at people. He sends his goons to Texas to lie to migrants and traffic them back to Martha's Vineyard, arrest mostly black people for voting in all good faith, and the list goes on and on. I guess it comes down to the definition of an asshole. And on a recent show, I was talking about what constitutes an asshole Let's look at the asshole behind the asshole. Like Putin's an asshole, but he has to worry about hawks who don't think he's tough enough within the Kremlin. There's usually a greater asshole. I don't know if Ron DeSantis is an asshole. A lot of it depends on the definition. I don't think that Greg Abbott of Texas, a politician who I'm sure Zlubars dislikes policy-wise. I, 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 I've met him. Uh, I think he might be a very decent person. I don't think he's an asshole. He's certainly a politician. To me... Uh, whether you think and make a judgment on Ron DeSantis's, you know, personal character and his goodness to the people around him and how much he truly loves his family and how much he goes out of his way to make life difficult for no reason just to people he doesn't like. I think that's a little beside the point, but I can't say for sure he fits in the category of, say, a person like Donald Trump, who's just a mean person. A, we all have, I mean, he's the most understood psyche in the history of the world, right? But that guy is an asshole. He does go out of his way to cause pain and suffering for no strategic reason, whereas I think DeSantis is a bit more strategic. But I'll withhold judgment on that. It's not that I grade Republicans on a curve. I'm sure that every Republican in the world would say that Chuck Schumer is an asshole. Certainly before him, Harry Reid was considered quite an asshole. Don't know. I think they're politicians. All right. This one's from J.W. Rundle. 
which good. Sounds like they could uh, sell sort of uh, office supplies. From J.W. Rundles, you have this hole punch. I love the gist, but I have some criticism, and it was about my interview with Michelle Tafoya, which he says as part of a trend of getting people on the gist and allowing them to engage in jacking off. What? He defines jacking off, or they, J.W. Rundle does, J-A-Q-I-N-G, jacking off, just asking questions. Get it? Jacking off. The phrase is used mostly by people on the far right to obfuscate complex issues and demand simple answers to complex problems. He goes on to talk about how this is a trend, how it's not really just asking questions. All right, here's what this inspired to me. There is a phrase, a pre to almost every legitimate path of inquiry or argument today. So while it is true that you could use the just asking questions excuse to excuse yourself from everything to do those vaccines really work all the way to was Sandy Hook a hoax, right? Alex Jones would retreat to just asking questions. But you know what? Sometimes questions need to be asked. And I think in progressive spaces, certainly on Twitter, that People are often assailed for asking legitimate questions and the phrase, oh, just asking questions is used as a cudgel against them. Similarly, both sidesism, people decry both sidesism. But you know what? Sometimes both sides need to be represented. Sometimes one of the sides is wrong. Sometimes sides three through eight should also be considered. But the denigration of both sidesism as ipso facto illegitimate is wrong. Same with whataboutism. Sometimes, as with China lecturing the U.S. on human rights, how could you not ask, what about the Uyghurs? Sometimes with the NBA taking social stances, it's quite legitimate to ask, well, what about China? And sometimes, whataboutism really is a distracting propaganda technique. Men sometimes have good splinations, right? Even though they're men and they're engaging in mansplaining, fewer times men have good reasons to spread. But I bet once in our lives, a man has explained something to us which allowed us to, I don't know, invest better, understand the lesson deeper, or tell us the best way to get to the old Johnson place. There is almost no good, legitimate, decent, defensible explanation that can't be undone by one of these pre-baked disqualification phrases that are mostly based on an eye roll. What's the tell when someone really is just asking legitimate questions and when they're just asking questions? I would say, listen to the questions. So this brings me to the lobstar of the Antwentig, the best listener, who added to the show in some way. And this Antwentig's lobstar is Eric Kingsbury. Eric Kingsbury, self-described avid pedestrian history geek, erstwhile politico, not as funny as I think, I'll be the judge of that. He's a president of the Dems to Dems party or uh, political group in San Francisco. And he was listening to the show the other day when I mentioned Heather Knight, who's a columnist for the San Francisco Chronicle. I said, she's the best city hall reporter in America. I think she is. He tagged her and said, oh, you should listen to this uh, beginning of the gist. Mike Pasco talked about a toilet. And listen, two sentences away from the word toilet was his reference to you, Heather Knight, as being one of the best Uh, or the best City Hall reporters in America. Now, we had asked Heather Knight to be on the show before, but you know, I'm sure she was like, look, I'm here in San Francisco. Uh, We got a prosecutor facing a recall. We got a car theft ring operating with near impunity. I got a $1.7 million toilet coming online. I got things to do besides be on the gist. But when shouted out by Eric Kingsbury, Heather said, what, what's going on? 
We gave her a feed of the show. I said, Heather, you got to come on. And Heather said, yes. So Eric helped us with a booking. And if you can do, I'm not asking you to facilitate this, but how about this? I feel a little guilty. I called Heather the best operating. I read the San Francisco Chronicle. But you know, I don't have a subscription to the Omaha World Herald. I don't have a subscription to the Indianapolis Star. So if you read any of these local papers, or even even not papers, I mean, it's not 1984 anymore. I'm sure there are local people reporting elsewhere. And you have someone who's like, well, you, this guy, this woman might not be on your radar, but Mike, you should know this person, know their work. Let me know who that person is. Uh, recently, uh, in this space, I said, what are the great podcasts you're listening to? And I did get great suggestions where I believe having a booking based on a show called Basic about Basic Cable, directly thanks to a listener suggestion. So give me those great reporters or those the one byline you see that you're like, well, I know if this person's writing it, I'm going to like it. Just like we know, if Eric Kingsbury is tagging you, you might be a guest on the gist. Thank you, Eric. You, sir, are the lobster of the Antwin Tig. The Gist was produced by Corey Wara, assistant producer. I consider him the MQ-8B fire scout drone of the Gist staff. Does he scout fires? Does he fire scouts? Doesn't matter. Multifaceted, that Corey Wara. As is Joel Patterson, our senior producer. He's something of the CQ-10 snow goose, which is available for light cargo transport by which they mean leaflet dropping, a leaflet dropping zone. Joel is very much involved in the dissemination of information. In fact, Joel is the producer of not only this show, but of Not Even Mad. Have we mentioned it a couple of times? Do go to the show notes. Remember to check out Not Even Mad by signing up for the show on Apple, Google, wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, we should also mention the COO of Peachfish Productions and... Peachfish Projects, Michelle Pesca, who I think of as the RQ-5A Hunter drone. Why? That's between me and her, but that also is her maiden name. The Gist is produced in collaboration with Libsyn's Advertise Cast, as is Not Even Mad. Fun fact about that, Advertise Cast, getting in on the Not Even Mad game. I gotta stop mentioning this every third sentence. But anyway... Go to advertisecast.com slash the gist for all your advertising needs. Um Peru, G Peru, Du Peru, and thanks for listening. But hey, I'm just a normal kid like you, except that I ask questions. And because I'm brave enough to ask questions, I come under scrutinies. Is Wendy using your lunch money to buy heroin? Probably not. But how can we know? I don't want my lunch money going to drugs. Who's taking these drugs? What would be the point? I'm asking questions.